0: Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today I'm joined by Leisha Bell, Executive MBA, Class of 2013. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Sean.
0: Leisha, you have a very rich background uh, of experiences, but before we talk about your career, we'd like to really hear about your origin story, where you're from, uh, where you grew up.
1: Yes, I love that. So I was born in Los Angeles. And I later moved to the San Francisco Bay Area to be a part of the tech.com movement. But ancestrally, my family's from the South. Both my grandparents are from Louisiana, and they migrated to the West. This is during World War II to work on the shipyards and the ports. And so my mother is a native Los Angeles, California. So I'm second generation L.A., which I'm very proud of.
0: We got you yeah, to San Francisco, to Oakland.
1: Yeah, so I graduated during the dot com boom of the two thousands, late nineties, two thousands, and I was so fascinated about what was happening in the Bay Area around the tech movement. So. I was a business major, but I quickly knew I needed to, to get into tech. And so I took up a minor in computer science for information systems. Wow. Um, so I could be rooted in that movement and it has uh, served me well. I've been here for 20 years <laughs> doing the same type of work. I was very lucky, I guess.
0: I should have had that insight.
1: That's exactly <laughs> what I'm supposed to be doing.
0: <laughs> so what what did you go into first as a career?
1: Yeah, so I started in banking. I joined Wells Fargo in their leadership development rotational program. I was an information technology associate. So that allowed me to rotate through various parts of the business and kind of learn my way through the company, working on different technology projects.
0: I mean, how deeply in IT were you? Were you a programmer or were you more on the operational side?
1: I used to say, I can look at the code, I can read it, but I surely don't want to do it. (laughs) So (laughs) I actually sat in engineering for most of my career uh, as either I started initially as a project manager, a business consultant. I was always in this liaison role between the business team and technology team. So that's where I straddled most of my career, Mm -hmm. sitting in technology, but fortunately never having to code, which I'm so thankful for.
0: That's awesome. (laughs) Now, I guess walk us through the progression of your career up to Haas and then after Haas.
1: Yes, yes. So I told you about me starting at Wells Fargo. I stayed there 15 years, so I call it my first retirement. But during that time, I did a lot of exciting things. I essentially I to build the team that did the M&A for the Wells & Wacobia merger which built cross functional teams led HR systems and talent integrations during that time. I was also at Wells Fargo for the subprime lending crisis that happened and navigated that experience for marginalized communities during that time and I also was one of the first people to launch Apple Pay. Have a very interesting perspective on mobile payments, digital money movement, starting from my first project there being bill pay, paying your bills online. You know, my mother was like, I'm never going to stop writing and sending checks in the mail ever. <laughs> uh, so uh, that was a big cultural shift at that time. After the kind of financial collapse of 2009, I decided to go back into business school um, after Hazi eventually let me in after three times of trying. So <laughs> they didn't know they wanted me, so I kept persisting. <laughs> eventually they let me in. And I went at a experiential time where... Uh, The company was post-recession at the time and was starting to do layoffs. So I went back to Haas and I got laid off six months into Haas, (laughs) which was very interesting because I had all this free time and I was able to become a full-time business school student. And I moved to New York and I got to travel the world with my classmates. So I would say that was a really interesting career break for me. So I went to Haas, I did the Berkeley Columbia program, and upon graduation, I actually went back to Wells Fargo to do another temporary assignment to work on digital payments. And I was the chief of staff for the head of credit. After that, I left Wells Fargo and went to Kohl's. And I did retail e-commerce. I was responsible for essentially the checkout experience related mm-hmm. to payment. So I mentioned launching Apple Pay at Wells Fargo, but I went to Kohl's, I launched Kohl's Pay. So essentially, I was in the world of retail which is a way funner industry than banking. <laughs> and I stayed there for three years. After that, I went to the startup, put my startup hat, and I went to work for a company called FeedsEye, which is an artificial intelligence company that fights fraud and payments. So I was mm-hmm. director of product there. The company is headquartered in Portugal. Uh, so I spent half my time in Europe and traveling all over Europe, fighting fraud, building strategies, looking at algorithms and models for AI on how we could break uh, various fraud patterns. So I did that until a classic startup crash and burn. (laughs) And I recovered. And then I uh, came into PayPal, which is my current employer. So there I'm working on Venmo commerce. So not the P2P, send your friends money, but actually the product that Uber uses and many large merchants. So you can use Venmo as a payment method. And that's wow. where I am today.
0: So Uber uses PayPal's Venmo for their... Yes, they do. Wow, okay. we the only way that. you
1: can get Venmo, so you have to call us if you want <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. That mm-hmm. is amazing. I use Venmo for so many things. Um, and when you're talking about that startup, yeah. it's so funny because I was helping one of my colleagues from last summer... He's been looking into the startup called Bolt.
1: Oh yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Bolt has been just uh, skyrocketing, and that's their huge value proposition, right? Is that fraud detection, right? And and improving conversion. And I just, I at first, I kind of brushed off the impact of all this because. I, so I forgot if I told you, I I used to own e-commerce companies. Like that's those were my first oh, okay. businesses. So. Cool. Um, So one of them's still around today, actually. It's been, I think over 10 years now. And I actually use Wells Fargo, actually I use (laughs) authorized.net that was resold by Wells Fargo as our payment gateway. And then it was just a terrible experience, not Wells Fargo, but authorized.net in of itself, because it's the fraud detection was so archaic. You literally, you check these (laughs) boxes that said, oh, do you want the addresses to match? And if you don't, then we're going to let this transaction through and you'll have to deal with the fraud. If it's fraudulent, then we're, we're not even going to talk to you. We're just going to take the money out of your bank account immediately because <laughs> we don't care if you already shipped the product. And it was just, it, it, it literally became something thats it became the status quo that I just accepted as right. a business owner. I just said, you know what, I'm going to build this into my costs, right? Right. 2%. <laughs> It's just going to be going to fraud. You know? Right. But to hear that you were working behind the scenes in some of the more proactive companies that, right. that were trying to solve and deal with this stuff, that's pretty cool. I, yeah. That helps make, make the connection as to how and why you're just so interested in finance as well.
1: That's and AI. Cool. AI is a personal passion.
0: <laughs> Actually, yeah, that's, that's a huge part of it. Wow. That's pretty cool. Sorry for that tangent. I just had to share because... I, no I, didn't, I didn't actually know that part um, of your career. <laughs> and so, um, actually, I want to hear a little bit about the Berkeley Columbia experience. How did yes. you, how, like, how did that work class-wise? I know that program went away in 2013 when you graduated.
1: Yes, yeah, we actually feel like we're like the kids of divorced parents. They agreed to split after us and so we feel responsible <laughs> for that and we're sorry. <laughs> It was an amazing program. Yeah, so it was a two for one deal is what we call it. So literally we have professors from both schools and we traveled back and forth across the country taking classes. So you have one week in Berkeley, the next month you go to New York, the next month you go to Berkeley. Uh, and so it was just crazy. It was actually crazy. Like this is a five-hour flight because most of the people are mm-hmm. mostly West Coast. There's a few New Yorkers and a few folks in the Midwest, but essentially just a traveling program. And so That's we amazing. would just have the bicostal experiences every month.
0: San Francisco, <laughs> New York, living the life.
1: We're definitely yeah, we we're definitely more studious when we we're in Berkeley than in New York. <laughs> I will tell you that.
0: That's so funny. <laughs> It was still a 18 month program?
1: Yes, 18 month accelerated program. Got it. Drinking out of the fire hose.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, I do have to ask, was there anything particular that you were looking to get out of the MBA skill set?
1: Yeah, you know, I knew that I wanted to take my career farther than where it was going. And I knew that more education was the path. I knew the people who were in leadership above me all had this degree called MBA. And so I knew it, mm-hmm. it was valuable from that perspective. And also when I was trying to look for roles prior to business school, I spent my last few years in HR. And I think mm. I couldn't, re- it's hard to rebrand myself from being in HR when my background was actually payment and technology. So I wanted to rebrand myself. I knew this was one way to do it. And I needed to get out of my California base. And so having to go to school in New York was definitely disrupting that base and that nucleus. And so I was hoping for that. I actually didn't think a lot about the career I wanted after business school, unfortunately. So I kind of took business school as just an experience. And I took all kinds of random courses. And they probably weren't as orchestrated, but those random courses actually led to what I would eventually be doing. Uh, so I am grateful for that path.
0: The MBA is what some call in the educational sabbatical. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, a topic that we discussed and talked about uh, during our interview prep was this idea of the weight of identities. You're right? Can you share with us a little bit about what your career has been like as a person of color and more so as a woman of color?
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting conversation and dialogue as we talk about identities and some people think it's a social construct, which some identities are social constructs, but being black and female is not a social construct. That <laughs> uh, That's my DNA. So I do feel like my background is different than most of my peers I I walk into the workspace with. My identity is different. Where I come from, my socioeconomic status is different. I'm a first-gen college student. I never knew anybody working in corporate America before Mm -hmm. me. And I'm typically usually the only one. And I think what that looks like is that people size me up really fast before I even get a chance to speak. Or state my purpose, or say who I am. In mean, most right. of my teams, and I was the only non-Indian, non-male in development groups. And I think partially I'm discounted uh, a lot about what my architectural experience is, what my payments expertise is, what I know about money movement, transactions, AI, and fraud, and. You know, I've been a professional in this for 20 years, so I actually know right. a lot about this stuff. And I did have a computer science minor, so I actually do get it at deeper levels than people give me credit for. I think that's part of it. You know, when I was doing AI work and fraud, I went to Tel Aviv, Israel, and I was held at security at the airport because they couldn't believe this black American woman was working at this company doing something very suspicious. And maybe I was a spy, and it it, it just didn't register because most of the people in that community are marginalized Ethiopian Jews and not in AI startups in America. And so I think it's kind of changing the narrative and challenging that when I walk into rooms just because I don't look like everybody else. And in most cases, I'm more qualified than everybody else. Most people don't have MBAs Mm -hmm. (laughs) in my job. Mm -hmm. So I do feel that is as a weight, but actually also as a responsibility to help people understand how our identities look different. I was talking to one of my leaders who is also a woman of color. She's Indian. I'm Black, right? And when we say that, we mean two different things. She has her own experience, which is important as an Indian woman of color and tech, and I have mine as a Black woman of color and tech, and there's, quite honestly, less of me and more of her. And so when we talk about how we assimilate identities, they're not all equal because we do have a social construct of race in our society that devalues Black and uh, Latinx people, and mm-hmm. it's systemic, and it's proven. And I think we have to understand that when we try to put these narratives together about how we show up. So it, it is harder for me to show up as the only one in a room in a company that doesn't support my cultural narrative, my food, my, all these things that, that would make it home, it's not home for me. I'm mm-hmm. visiting and trying to find my way. And I think for everyone to kind of be more aware of those identities and affirm those different identities that are not the dominant narrative is helpful. No, that's very true. No, there's a lot of invisibility to it because yeah. it's because if you're not exposed to different experiences or identities, then we all live. We could all live in our bubble. I mean, there's a reason why I live in Oakland because there's black people in Oakland. I could live in San Francisco, right. but I wanted something affirming where I planted my roots and see people that look like me because I couldn't get it in my day to day job. Right. You know, and like all these ways, there's just survival tactics, right? It's like. You know, you're in different cultures, do it in different ways.
0: Right. I actually remember Marco Lindsay
1: was sharing mm, this. That he,
0: he was saying he very intentionally lives in Oakland so that he can mm. be an example to the community and show them that, yes, I'm black. Yes, I'm a you know businessman. Yes, I'm all these things. Right. And you can too. Uh, you can be too, right? right? I think there's a lot of power in that as well. No, That's great. So I think... The segue for that is, you know, you shared a little bit with me prior about your interests and passion in providing access to financial services, to the underserved. And you mentioned even the idea that you uh, ultimately you want to launch a fund to provide capital to the underserved communities. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I'll give you some numbers. People like data. 0.006% 0.006% of venture funding goes to black women. There's only about 40 black women who've raised over a million in funding. In the city of Los Angeles, where I am from, black and Latinx people only hold 1% of the wealth of that city. In a city that's 70% non-white. And I share that, those stats to say, we are nowhere near where we should be in terms of wealth and access. And so why is that? <laughs> Part of the issue is access to credit, access to capital, access to education, very few high income earners. And all of these things carry different weights and impacts to why we are where we are. We have major gaps in our society and and partially, I think what Marco was saying that he chooses to live here when most black people from Oakland have been forced to leave is a statement. It's resiliency and so people who are marginalized, who aren't in tech in the Bay Area, for example, don't make these kind of wages, you know, making minimum wage, trying to live in these very expensive cities that they can't afford, really afford to be here, just making a statement because Mm -hmm. it's not in their best interest to stay, but it's in the places that they built and they want to sustain. And I'm passionate about it. My day job is money movement, how to provide access to the unbanked. Ventmo is, is a great product for unbanked. People. And I love that about it. And um, so is PayPal. And, you know, how do we give people access to move money digitally, to have a place to store money, to have a trusted source? That's a big issue trust. And so my personal passion is one day to build a fund for Black women who are trying to be entrepreneurs, to have access and capital, to to fundraise meaningful amounts of money, the average black woman entrepreneur makes $36,000 a year. Hmm. And that's saddening Hmm. (laughs) Um, to me when we know that some white boys walk into a room with a PowerPoint deck and get at least a million. And we're not able to get those types of numbers and investment. And partially it's because the white boys control 99% of the capital in this country. And so mm-hmm. either you have to convince them to change their minds and hearts or you have to get more people of color on these cap tables who see value in those people.
0: Right. You know, your your passion for providing access to financing and financial services, mm-hmm. how does that play into the Black Lives Matter movement, if at all?
1: Yeah. So Black oppression is directly related to economic suppression. And so... George Floyd was killed because he lost his job and fabricated a $20 bill. If mm. George Floyd had a job, he'd be alive today. Mm-hmm. And the issue why people, some people are are looting because they have nothing. They have absolutely nothing. They have nothing to lose because they, and society gives them nothing. Mm. And if people had something, if you gave people a, a piece of the pie a little bit, if you gave people access to home ownership they would have a stake. They would have equity. They would be rooted in and more confident about what they can do and who they could be. And fortunately, we've seen this time and time again. The, the uprest is not just about Black people getting murdered unconsciously, it's also about the lack of opportunity that black people have. And that's why we we're in this vicious cycle that we need to get out of. We need to escape it. We need to be rescued right. from that. Because until our, our socioeconomic status has improved, it's a dire situation. And as you may have mentioned and led to, immigrants have far better experiences typically than marginalized people in this country. Mm-hmm. And we have to put that in perspective and think about why we aren't supporting the people who are trying to make it here in meaningful ways. Nobody wants to be on government assistance. That's not the life to have. Nobody yeah. wants to live a life of crime or violence or doing any illegal activity. Few people aspire to do that.
0: <laughs> like, I don't think anyone aspires <laughs> to do that
1: wants the American dream, right? Everybody yeah. wants to have a house and be able to feed their kids and have safe environments.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I mean, that's this is the house that we built. And it's, you know, <laughs> the American dream isn't built for for everyone else but Americans. <laughs> I think that's, that's what's really fascinating <laughs> as an immigrant, you know, coming here. And I, I think even when I talk to my parents about that narrative it's they actually helped me realize that they came here because America was strong and great. And, yeah. and it, it, I do feel like this is a whole nother can of worms, <laughs> but they, there's definitely a lot more that we need to do for our country and our people.
1: Yeah. And I, I think mean, it, it really yeah.
0: starts with people of privilege.
1: Yeah. How can we make this opportunity for all and not opportunity for some? hmm
0: Right. So... Aside from your plans to launch a fund, what are some other ways we can help seed this ecosystem mm. to create more diversity, equity, inclusion?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, vote with your pocketbooks. Make statements with <laughs> with your checks, right? Investment. I can't think of anything more important as investment. And it's not just investment in in venture capital. It's supporting uh small businesses. It's providing scholarships. We're in a country where it doesn't matter how brilliant you are. If you can't afford to go to college, you don't go. Mm -hmm. That's silly. If you're a brilliant and scholar, let's throw you some free money. We have this kind of society that uh, values your social economic status more than your actual talent and capabilities. Mm -hmm. And how do we we shift that? It's we. I believe in affirmative action. I'm an affirmative action product myself. So Mm -hmm. What what if I wasn't here? What if I wasn't given that opportunity? Which I'm very grateful for. We wouldn't have that. And we, we need systemic policies because otherwise we, we don't behave. <laughs> like it doesn't just magically happen. You actually right. need policies and infrastructure. Vote, please vote. I mean, this is how we move things in, in this democratic society. And that's what we need.
0: Yeah. And the other thing that you were mentioning is voting with your pocketbooks, right? And that's something that, my wife and I had a discussion about a couple of weeks back when she was just saying, we all have this power that sometimes we don't even think about in how and where we spend our money, mm. and that in of itself, what businesses we choose to support right and as our society becomes more and more transparent, hopefully this trend continues, where people can see you know what is it that this X company stands for, or that company stands for, that we are conscious about voting with our pocketbooks because we don't have to buy from that company. You know, there's many times that we don't buy something. People buy non-GMO. They spend a little bit more money because they believe in this cause. And so when it comes to other things, (laughs) this applies to everything. Everything. We, We should make a conscious decision to support financially the the businesses that you know, are aligned with us. Absolutely. I think that's actually a really positive trend. All right. So uh, I guess let's hear a little bit about PayPal.
1: Yes. You know, what,
0: what is PayPal doing and what are you doing at PayPal?
1: Yes. And I think this question is response to Black Lives Matter. So PayPal had a major announcement of 530 million commitment to black communities. And as an employee of PayPal, I'm extremely proud of the statement and the acknowledgement that this community needs investment. And so $500 million of that is going to venture capital for long-term sustainment of the ecosystem and entrepreneurship. $10 million is going to small businesses. $5 million is going to nonprofits that supply technical assistance. And $15 million is going to internal equity. Mm. And I appreciate the holisticness of this initiative. I am a leader of the Black Employee Group at PayPal. I am firsthand involved in not only shaping experiences for our consumers, uh, but also the experiences of employees at this company. And I take that uh, responsibility even, un, you know, it's an unpaid responsibility. I take it very seriously because I know I'm one of the few. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I'm very proud of, you know, working on these initiatives and executing in a meaningful way.
0: Does it ever feel exhausting that you're the only flag bearer or that you are the flag bearer?
1: Yeah, yeah, it definitely can be exhausting and I do hold some privilege that I am, you know, halfway through my career and have been here, been there, done that before. And I feel comfortable voicing my opinion because I also vote with my feet if I not support it in where I work. I can go somewhere else and, and look for that support. And I do feel encouraged that people are willing to listen I have leaders in my organization that are willing to listen and hear me out, and that's what I call allyship. And I actually have a few co-conspirators who take a next level, who actually use their power and influence to make change. My own manager, who is an Indian male, was marching for Black Lives with his kids, and I love that. It made me tearful, considering we have very different perspectives. And I don't, you know, he may not fully understand the American racial construct because it's different in India, and everybody has mm-hmm. their own construct that is unique to culture and identity. And he took a stand to support me and my daughters, and I, I just love that bravery and courageousness that it, that the co-conspirators have taken. Uh, my non-black colleagues wrote an open letter to the CEO about what they thought black employees should have to be successful here. And I was like, yes, you know, we see mostly non-black people marching, and that is very encouraging and inspiring to see that I am not alone in the voice.
0: That's great. That is inspiring to hear, and uh, and that's something that we still have a lot more work to do. I think as a community, as citizens of this, you know, of this nation, and this is just the beginning.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, um, any parting words of wisdom? This this is actually something that I read on your LinkedIn, your letter to your daughters. I think what are some yeah. parting words of wisdom to our children?
1: Yeah, I think if we can expose our children to everything and know that we as parents have limitations. and But there are so many other people who can help us Bridge those gaps, expose our, our children to different cultures, different languages. Hopefully one day we'll be able to travel again and see other parts of the world and be less myopic and have compassion and empathy. Like let's raise our children to be empathetic and have understanding and not be presumptive in who or what they think people are or their capabilities because of what they look like. Mm-hmm. and just teach our children to love not only people animals our gardens nature like love everything that we're given and this is a time of like gratitude particularly during this season of stillness in corona and just being grateful that we have a community of people who are with us are walking with us, supporting our neighbors. You know, I really am enjoying the energy of, of love and, and just camaraderie right now. So I want to keep it going. Even when we return back to normal, And I don't want us to forget that we actually took time to talk to our neighbors again. You know, we did grocery shopping for the elderly. We took all the things, the acts of compassion that, that's been going on. Let us sustain that in a beautiful way.
0: It's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that, Lisha. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much. Go Bears.
0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the One Haas here at Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player and give us a rating or review. You can also check out more of our content on our website at onehaas.org, where you can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter.
1: Until next time, go Bears.